So today we're in our eighth part of our study. We've been studying this for the last few months um, called Patriarchs and Matriarchs, Walking the Way of Faith. So we have been attempting to learn something about uh, faith from our fathers and our mothers in faith. How they walked and how they failed and how they got picked back up and how they walked in faith. Now there's been about a three week gap so we've got a little introduction just to kind of keep us back. We had Easter and we had the missions conference and then last week we talked about being adopted into God's family and into an earthly family. So well, we're going to be in the text um, pretty heavy um, but I want to be begin with a summary because our text for today is Genesis 23 and Genesis 24. Chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis and we will cover as much as we can. Um, but as you, as you prepare every week you'll notice that I've been kind of going through about two chapters a week in Genesis and you can always find it in the, in the front page of the bulletin it kind of tells you what to read ahead for next week so next week is actually going to be three chapters chapters 25 26 and 27 so I just want to draw your attention to that because if you're immersing yourself in God's word throughout the week and then you come here and you hear a, a message out of that passage somewhere the Holy Spirit is going to speak because the word of God is alive and it's living. And if you're immersed in it and you're, you're asking God to show you and you're asking God to show you through me and the Holy Spirit, it's about much better. And I wouldn't say experience, but you'll be growing in your faith walk. So next week is Genesis 25, 26, and 27. So this is where we've been over the last uh, little bit. So God had come to Abram and Sarai and he asked them, to take a pilgrimage and during that time they were barren and he made them a promise and he said if they follow hard after him if they follow him on this journey there would be risks there would be heartaches there would be struggles but oh the reward would be incredible the reward would be so worth following God by faith because every step of their journey, God's presence would be with them. As they left their home country and they traveled down around the, and come down south towards Egypt, every step of the way, God has been walking with them. And, and, and yes, Abraham and Sarah, you will have children, just not yet. You're still barren. And yes, I'm going to build a family of faith through you, Abraham and Sarah. And for generations to come, there are going to be people that, that look at your faith walk and say, wow, what an amazing God we serve. And then they're going to talk about you for generations to come. And we're still doing that thousands of years later. And we have watched God over the generations, watching him keep his promise, watching this promise that he made be fulfilled through Abraham and Sarah. Because we know that if you read Matthew if you start out in Matthew, in the first part of the genealogy, who's it list? Abraham, the father of Isaac. So God is in the business of keeping his promises. So this is the promise he made to Sarai, uh, to Abraham and Sarai in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15 and 16. Can I grab that slide, please? It says this. This was back, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Then God said to Abraham, regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah, and I will bless her, 
and give you a son for him from her. Yes, I will bless her richly, and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. And we watch this unfold as we walk through Genesis and as we walk through the rest of the Old Testament. So now we get to chapter 23. And Sarah dies. The matriarch, Abram's wife, the mother of Isaac, she dies. And all of chapter 23 is, is, is attempting to deal with all the after-death decisions that have to be made. So anybody that has buried a loved one understands that there is a lot of after-death business to do. And Abraham, specifically in this chapter, is he's looking for a place to bury his beloved wife. Remember, they're both pilgrims, and they're all their families. They're pilgrims in this foreign land of Canaan. They have no place permanently to call home. They still haven't reached the promised land. So they keep pitching their tents wherever God calls them to go, and they faithfully go. And now death separates them. And he wants a proper burial for his wife. In order to do that, he needs some land in order to bury her. So he begins asking around in the land of Canaan. And the text, and, and we're gonna, I'm just going to kind of overview 23 and we'll turn to 24 in a little bit. And the text in Genesis 23 verse 6 said, and it's talking about Abraham. And this is what the locals were saying. It says, you are an honored prince among us. Choose the finest of our tombs and bury her there. No one here will refuse to help you in any way. Abraham and Sarah were so loved, so revered, an honored prince among the locals in that pagan nation that they offered Abraham any tomb, any piece of land that he would want. And Abraham's like, no, uh-uh, I want to pay for the land. It's not right for me to take the land from you. I want to have a proper place to bury my wife. He also, in verse 9, says, I want a permanent place for my family to be buried. So he's thinking future. He knows he's a pilgrim, but he's thinking future. But he wants to do this right. So then Abraham's thinking, and he's talking to these locals, and he remembers a guy by the name of Ephron. We, 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 we find him in, 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 in this chapter 23. And he remembers that Ephron has a, a field with just a beautiful cave at the back of the field. And so he asked the locals to get in touch with Ephron and, and, and see if he can purchase that property. Well, unbeknownst to him, him Ephron was in the crowd. So Ephron comes out of the crowd, and he, he comes up to Abraham, and he says, he says, you don't have to purchase it from me. I'll give you this property. I'm about 50 years old. I'm still waiting for somebody to give me property. <laughs> it hasn't happened. Probably never will. But, so Ephron offers him this property, and, and Abraham's like, no, I want to buy this from you. And he bows low to Ephron. And we hear Ephron's response in verse 15. My Lord, please listen to me. The land is worth 400 pieces of silver. But what's that between friends? Go and ahead and bury your dead on my piece of property. So there's, there's this comedy of story, if you can hear it, that's going on between Abraham and these locals. And they're, they're dickering and they're trying to figure this out. In the end, Abraham pays for the field. And then verse 19 
Have that slide, please. Verse 19, it says, it says this. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamar. That is, Hebron in the land of Canaan. So he ends up buying this land from Ephron. So does the location Mamre ring a bell to anybody? If you've been following along in this series as we've studied and walked through Genesis, that, that place Mamre or Mamre should ring a bell for you. It was at the oaks of Mamre, beneath those big trees, when she was almost 90 years old, that Sarah heard that she would give birth to a son Isaac. The three men, the angels, the God came to her and said, hey, you're going to have a son. And what does she do in response? She laughs. And we talked about that real heavy. She laughed in disbelief that she was going to have a son. And now, at 127 years old, so 90, 100, 120, 30-some years later, she's buried in Mamre, the same place. And, and there's a fine line between being born and being buried. Between life and death. And in this journey of faith that we walk as believers, sometimes that line gets blurred. But walking in faith helps make it clear. Helps, helps figure that out, what that looks like. So John Claypool talked about that fuzzy line being born and being buried, the difference between life and death. And he said this, he said, if you want to get your head around this great mystery of death, about what happens to us when we die, we have to understand what happens to us when we are born. Because when a baby is born, so this is appropriate, if everything has gone well and everyone is healthy, then everyone in the room is filled with joy. And it's a great experience. Because when a... Excuse me. But looking at it from the baby's perspective... Everybody else is laughing and smiling, except for the baby. According to the baby, something went terribly wrong, right? Everything was fine for nine months. Warm, comfortable, dark, all the food that she needed right there coming into her. Never had to lift a finger. Even at night, there's this nice rhythmic little, little sound to go to sleep to. And now there's all this squeezing and pushing and contract, contractions back and forth. And things are happening. And then some guy she doesn't even know slapping her across the back saying, breathe, breathe, breathe. To everyone in the room, it's birth. There's something to celebrate. But from the baby's perspective, it's not birth, it's death. The death of a life she used to know. But everybody in the room knows different because they have a different perspective. Everybody knows that there's a fine line between death and birth. There's something mysterious and glorious in that process. If only we have eyes to see and to understand what's happening. So the same pattern repeats as this little child grows up. Around five, she will leave the home and go to school. The death of what she knew. The birth of something new. Then she will grow up and become a teenager. She'll lose her innocence of the childhood that she had. But there's so much excitement about what's coming. 
And then as a young adult, she launches into adulthood and life and college and career and marriage. And the, the parents, and that's where we're at as parents, we grieve that loss. Things are different. They're not the way they used to be. The, the life rhythms have changed. When my waking up in the morning and my mealtime at home and my tucking my kids, that's different. And, and, and I grieve that. There's, there's sadness, but there's hope. There's hope. The young adult knows that hope. Me as a, an adult, I know that hope because I know how things change. There is this birth of life, an independence, a freedom, a purpose. And the very pattern repeats again and again and again. There's a fine line between death and birth. And sometimes it gets blurred. So why would this not be the case when someone dies their final death? Sarah has died. Verse 1 of chapter 23. When we look at it, we see the end of something. And there's grief, and there's sadness, and that's rightfully so. And some of you have lost loved ones in this last year, and it's painful. But the exciting part, that is actually the beginning of something mysterious and gloriously new, especially, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the promise keeps moving forward. That line, that, that line between death and life is more clear. So we have Sarah is dead. She's buried in a cave at, at Mamar, the same place that life was born into her. Now she's dead. And it leaves us to ask a significant promise, a significant question. Will the promise live? Will this promise that we've been following along since Genesis chapter 12, will it live? She was the one that God made this promise to. Is God going to be faithful? Is he going to do what he said he's going to do? It was through her that this promise was given birth to. Nations would come from her womb. So many children that the stars and the skies would be full of her children. But with her dead, will this promise last? Will it live past her? Now, that, 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 that's a, a powerful question to ask ourselves, too, as we sit here. Whenever you and I come to the place where the promise of our life becomes challenged or questions, we want to know, will it live? Everything I've hoped for, everything I knew to be true is being challenged. Will it live? Think about our faith. Think about, we're talking about faith walk through this series. You believe the promise of Christ. You believe that Christ offers a life that is, that, that is abundant and, and greater than anything we could ever anticipate, full of redemption, full of peace, full of power, full of purpose. You believe that you're forgiven. You believe that the promise of Christ, that there can be reconciled relationships internally and amongst each other and families. That there can be a steadiness in the, in, in the storms of life that are happening. So what happens when you take that promise? And that's the core of who you are. My whole life is about these promises of God. What happens when there's storms? 
when, when life feels like there's everything but promise right now. Anybody ever been there? Well, you're just, God, what? I don't understand. Promised peace, but I can't even sleep at night. Promised reconciled relationships, yet things are splintered in my family. Promised power if we walk in the Holy Spirit, but yet I have the same sin. Promised purpose, but life feels anything but purposeful and aimless. It's just the opposite. So you got to ask your quest, yourself the same question. Will the promise live? So, so chapter 23 raises the question. Chapter 24 answers it. So take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 24. That was one heck of a long introduction. But I wanted to set that up. Chapter 24 answers it. In chapter 24, Abraham begins the job of seeking a wife for his son Isaac. And you might be thinking, Pastor Ryan, I get it. Will the promise live? I understand what you're doing. But I don't understand why you're asking it. She did have Isaac, right? He's the promised son. God promised it. He came. Isn't he the one that's going to carry on the promise? And the answer is yes. Kind of. Isaac is known as a deadbeat in the patriarchal narratives. Not much happens with Isaac. In fact, most biblical scholars believe his greatest contribution was to serve as a bridge between Abraham and his son Jacob. Because he was about 40 years old now. No wife no prospects, no children, really no interest, just kind of floating through life. And for that era, that was old, to not have any of those things. So Abraham looks at the situation, he says, my wife's dead. What's going to happen to this promise that God made? So he sends his oldest servant to, out to find a wife for Isaac. But he says, do me a favor. Don't look in our neighborhood. Don't find someone from Canaan. That's a whole nother study. Of, of, I wish I had time to talk about why not. It's a pagan culture. Go find somebody that has faith as a spouse for Isaac. Go back to my people, where we came from, and find her a wife. So the servant takes off with camels and gold and silvers and nose rings to seek a wife for Isaac so that the promise can live. And this is where I want to pick up the text in Genesis chapter 24, verse 10. And I want to read this out loud. I'm together. You guys can stay seated. But Genesis 24 through 10, we're going to look at this in a few different sections as we walk through the longest chapter in, in Genesis. So let's start reading. Then he loaded 10 Abram's camels with all kinds of expensive gifts from his master. And he traveled to distant Aram Nahariam. There he went to the town where Abraham's brother Nahor had settled. He made the camels kneel beside the well just outside the town. It was evening and the women were coming out to draw water. O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, please give me success today. And show unfailing love to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing here beside this spring. 
and the young women of the town are coming out to draw water. This is my request. I will ask one of them, please give me a drink from your jug. Let her be the one you have selected as Isaac's wife. This is how I will know that you have shown unfailing love to my master. All right, so I want to pause here and take a little, little detour. I find this part of the passage fascinating. And it's not just from all that transpires here, but think for a moment. Here is Abraham's oldest servant, been with Abraham for so long, and what's he doing? He's exercising faith. His own faith. Not the faith of his master Abraham. A faith that he saw Abraham and Sarah walk with for years. But now he's exercising it himself. It's not good enough if your parents have faith. You have to choose faith. It's not good enough if the church has faith. You have to choose faith. It's a personal decision. And he's praying to God that God would give him success. Unveil his eyes so that he may recognize the potential candidates for the promise to live on. And sometimes the greatest examples of faith come from those we don't expect it, right? I love reading those stories. And I'm not saying Jordan and Angie don't have faith. We expect that. But hearing their story last week of how they said yes to God and the journey that God, the pilgrimage that God had them on, didn't that encourage you? Encourage me. Look, take your kids and surround them with people that have faith. Hear stories like that. Read stories at night about what God is doing in people's lives. Because a lot of times it's the people you don't expect it. So here's the servant of Abraham praying, setting an example for us. And he's praying along that every step of the faith journey needs to be saturated in prayer. There, there's nothing that is insignificant with God. Say that with me. Nothing is insignificant with God. So go back with me two weeks. It's Tuesday night. Pastor Dave's having praise team practice, getting ready for the big Easter service. Had a big team up here on Easter. Jean is playing her oboe back here. Worked great, right, Jean? Wednesday morning she gets up. One of her keys is not working. Stuck, broken, I don't know. Wednesday night we have an elder meeting and we always do prayer requests. And Mark, her, her husband says, hey, this might sound a little, but can you guys pray for Jean's oboe? We're like, yeah, what's going on? She, he said, this thing's old. She loves it. She's used it for decades. She's worshipped with it. And she really wants to be on the praise team on Sunday morning on Easter. But she can't find a part for this thing anywhere. So we prayed. I ran into her Friday or Saturday. She's still not working. Sunday morning, she comes here in faith. And she says, God's got something for me. Maybe it's not my oboe. It's something else. She comes up here. She starts playing, and it works. There is nothing insignificant that you can't bring to your heavenly father. He cares about every single detail of your life. It might not always seem that way, but he does. It might not work out the way you want it to work out, but he cares. So this servant could have easily said, I've got this. I'm going to take this. Oh, what an honor. I get to pick the new wife. 
But he doesn't do that. He knew the importance of prayer and that God wants to be, be, be in every detail of his life. And he prays in such a way, this is so key, he prays in such a way that, that there's yieldedness in his life, that he believes that God was in all and around all and he's going to answer. And before he gets to amen, what happens? There's Rebecca. One thing, I, as I was reading this, I'm like, he was praying with his eyes open. <laughs> I always thought you had to pray with your eyes closed when I was a kid. That's not true. Talk to God wherever you're at. If you're driving... If you're spraying in the apple orchard this week, pray and talk to God. You don't always have to have your eyes closed when you talk to God. So anyway, side note. So, so he, before he says amen, there's Rebecca. And it reminds me of some great, great passages. Psalm 139, um, verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. It also reminds me of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he was talking about prayer when he says, for your father knows exactly what you need before what? Can you have the other slide, please? Before you even ask him. Matthew 6, verse 8, out of the Sermon on Jesus' own words. You believe that? that? Jesus knows everything, exactly what you need before you even ask. That's a journey of faith. So why even ask? Why even ask? Answer. So God can unveil your, your eyes to begin to recognize the place where God is already, already answering and providing and working. God is always two, three, four, a lifetime of steps ahead of you. When God makes a promise... He's planned it out way ahead. And he's just saying, watch what I'm going to do. Do you have eyes to see what's happening? Do you have eyes to see what's unfolding around you? Are you participating in that? That's why in Romans 8 we hear these words. In all things God works for good for those that love God and are called according to his purposes. God works for good. God punches the clock for good for us to see what he's doing. God is at work even when we're making errored ways. God is tugging at us and saying, come on back. Watch what I'm going to do. Watch how I'm going to take this and I'm going to use this for my glory and to keep the promise. And God doesn't stop with that. The servant is praying to the Lord before he finishes, there's Rebecca. And we learn something about this new matriarch of our faith. So let's go to verse 16 in this chapter. 24 verse 16. And we're going to read through verse 21. Let's read it aloud. Rebecca was very beautiful and old enough to be married. But she was still a virgin. She went down to the spring filled her jug, and came up again. Running over to her, the servant said, Please give me a little drink of water from your jug. Yes, my lord, she answered. Have a drink. And she quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and gave him a drink. When she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too. 
until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jug into the watering trough and ran back to the well to draw water for all his camels. The servant watched her in silence, wondering whether or not the Lord had given him success on his mission. The ESV in verse 21 says it this way. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So this is not some creepy guy staring at a woman. This is more than just gazing at her beauty. This is to see if he could see what God sees. This is to see if he could see what God sees. Is that not the journey of faith? Is not that not every prayer you have attempted to pray ever, always, period? Lord, help me to see what you see. Sometimes, if, sometimes we get it right, and sometimes I totally miss it. But the prayer of a servant as he watched her in silence was to see if he could see the promise. If he could see what was going to happen. So hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. But I want to introduce you to Rebecca. And I've nicknamed her Remarkable Rebecca. Anytime we went on a mission trip, and if you've been a teen through this church, we always came up with adjectives for our first names. Rockin' Ryan. One year I was ripping Ryan. That was 20 years ago. But <laughs> she's Remarkable Rebecca, who in this passage is introduced as one who's beautiful, strong, respected, and wise. Verse 16, Rebecca the beautiful. All it says is Rebecca was very beautiful. The message version describes her beauty this way. She was stunningly beautiful. Sorry, beautiful. She was not only beautiful, very clear, but she was also strong. Rebecca the strong. Notice that she had given water to the servants. And then she ran to give water to the camels. How many camels were there? Ten camels. How much water can a camel drink a day? Thirty gallons. Ten camels, thirty gallons, three hundred gallons possibly. How many jugs did she have? One jug. And what did she do? She was like, I don't want to do this. No, she ran. She worked hard. She was strong, not only physically, but in her morals and her conviction and in her character. What's verse 16 say at the end of it? And old enough to be married, but she was still a virgin. Rebecca is stunningly beautiful, and yet she's a virgin. We might assume that there is at least a handful of men that were hypnotized by her beauty, tried to get in bed with her, but she was saving herself for marriage. For the one man that would commit to her and her alone. What a novel idea. I think it's biblical. We need to have a culture of Rebecca's. And men as well. Men, you have to take the lead in this. Young men. Look at me. All the young men. You need to stand up and protect those girls around you on your dates and in your relationships. We need a culture of Rebecca's and we need a culture of young men that value what God teaches us. The devastation, the hurt. You ever been in a room? We talked about how babies were 
It's exciting to be in there when they're born. I've been in rooms where that was not the case. Because of failed morals. And God still loves that child. And God still can take it and he can turn it and do miraculous things. But we need a culture of young men and young women that are strong, not only beautifully strong, but in their character and their morals and in their characters who are saving themselves till marriage. One man, one woman for life. Rebecca was also respected. After all the events that we just read, she brings the servant back to her people and she introduces him to her father. And they begin the negotiation over the dowry. They begin to talk about what would life look like if she went to Isaac's place. If she moves to become his wife. They talk about a bride price. Silver, gold, camels, nose rings. That was common in that day. But, but the most awesome part as I read this text is in Genesis 24, 57 through 58. The, 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 the family, the men of the culture, they wanted to make sure she wanted to go. They respected her opinion. This is what it said. Well, they said, we will call Rebecca and ask her what she thinks. So they called Rebecca. Are, are you willing to go with this man? They asked her, and she responded, yes, I will go. Rebecca was respected in a world of a patriarchal society where it was rare for a woman to have any voice whatsoever. They asked for her permission. Again, so many biblical principles there. She's not only beautiful, she's strong, she's respected, she's also wise. Rebecca the wise. And probably the most important of all. There's this encounter at the end of the chapter, we're getting close, hang with me. Where she meets Isaac for the very first time. She's in a caravan, she's going to find Isaac in his home time. Can you imagine what's going through her mind? I just kind of think through that. I remember the first time I ever laid eyes on Stacy. And I had somebody I had liked. My cousin and his girlfriend didn't like this girl. So they invited me to plant Christmas trees on a Saturday morning. And they said, we have somebody you want to meet. And the way they described her, I was like, she's way out of my league. And then she came walking into that Christmas tree field on a dreary, rainy Saturday morning. And my anticipation before that is, what's she going to be like? Who? And I had so many questions. And oh my goodness, the first time I saw her, I'll never forget it. Still know what she was wearing, and she was carrying a little kid. Can you imagine what, can you imagine what Rebecca's thinking as she goes, goes into this? She has no clue what she's getting into. And she's about to lay eyes on Isaac for the first time. So let's pick it up in 36 and 37. Let's read it with me again. One evening, as he was walking and meditating in the fields, he looked up and saw the camels coming. When Rebecca looked up and saw Isaac, she quickly dismounted from her camel. Who is that man walking through the fields to meet us? She asked the servant. And he replied, It's my master. So Rebecca covered her face with her veil. Then the servant told Isaac everything he had done, and Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent, and she became his wife. He loved her deeply, and she was a special comfort to him after the death of her mother. 
Side note, this is the first place where we see in Scripture where a husband actually loved his wife. Again, lots there. If you were here at the marriage summit last night, you heard Jack give his testimony of how him and Priscilla have loved each other. Powerful. And I bring this up because I had somebody walk in this morning. She said, I grew up in this church and then still a believer, but had, got married and there were in other areas. She said, when I was here as a child, I looked at families in this church and I knew Jack loved his wife then. And it hasn't changed. Rebecca was loved by Isaac. I, I'm not going to go anywhere else with that. Just, just leave it there. I got some thoughts. But. So there's a comedy in this movement as we watch this. When she looks up, she sees Isaac, and she dismounts from her camel. It gives us the impression that with such grace and dignity, she slides off her white horse, and they run to each other, and they embrace, and they fall forever in love, right? Picture that in slow motion. <laughs> but Hebrew scholars say that this word dismount might not be what we think. Some version says, and Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. Which literally means she quickly leapt down from the camel. She might have slipped and might have even fallen. So leaving the question, why did she do that? Maybe Isaac was so good looking that he just blew her off the horse and was like, whew. But I actually like the other version. Maybe he was so ugly that she was like, oh, I need to hide myself from him. But the third version is probably what's more closely true. Is, and it was cultural. In a book called Law and uh, uh, law and book is what it's called. The author Thomas is in that culture, women frequently refuse to ride in the presence of men. And when a company of them are to pass through town, they often dismount and walk. So she did it out of respect. Respectful Rebecca. But the most powerful line that I've been chewing on for the last couple of weeks is in verse 62. When they first came into contact, the text says, Isaac first saw camels. Isaac, what's unfolding before you? As you're looking at what's coming, what do you see? Camels. A herd of camels. Men, have you ever been there? Yeah, we've all been there. You tell lots of stories there. What about you, Rebecca? What do you see? Who's that man walking in the field? Isaac. Laughter. Pr promise. She looks up and she sees the thing that God sees. Promise. At the end of chapter 24, you and I are shown that the promise is going to live because she is going to listen. She is going to see what others cannot see. The question that raises for you and I as we close, will the promise live in you? Will you see what God sees? It totally depends on what you see when you look up. When you look into the, all that's unfolding in your life, the unknowns, the turmoil, the dust clouds coming, all the struggle, all the stress, all the anxiety, all the good things, the challenge when you look up and look into those things, when you look into unfamiliar territory, the brand new season of life, the question is, do you see camels? Or do you see promise? 
The way of faith, hear me clearly, the way of faith is to see promise before camels. Say it with me. The way of faith is to see promise before camels. And for the way of promise for us that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we never take our eyes off what Jesus accomplished when he went to the cross for you and I. When he, he, when he was crucified for our sins and rose victoriously from the grave. We need to keep our focus on that and the promises that come out of that as we walk through life. It will be challenged. You will have times where your eyes come off of that. We've got to keep our eyes on the promise. We've watched how the God keeps his promise and the promise will live listen to hebrews 12 verse 1 through 2 therefore since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses to the life of faith abraham sarah rebecca isaac on and on we go this is why we're studying the mamas and papas of our faith that's why we're spending a whole season doing this let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Do you see promise? Or do you see camel? May we be a church. May we be families. May we be individuals that see promise and live out of that promise. Do not get distracted by the camels and the dust cloud that they raise. Let me pray. Father, Satan wants to distract us. He's our enemy. And for some of us, he distracts us very easily, and others, he's got to work a little harder. But Father, may we be people who are so intent on walking in faith, so intent on knowing you better, so intent on following hard after you and wherever you call us to go, that we keep our eyes on you, that we see the promise. And as we read Scripture, God, can we see that theme all the way through Scripture, all the way back from Abraham, all the way up through Jesus, all the way up to eventually our promised life with you. Because there is a difference between life and death. And for believers, it is so sweet. So may we be people that focus on the promise. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.